Welcome back to Night School, Episode 9, Song of Myself, Part 6. And back with me, as usual, is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Russ Chance. Welcome, Russ. Hey, thanks. Welcome home. Thank you very much uh, to the listeners. I've just come back from beautiful Hawaii, so mahalo. And uh, I'm ready to get back to work talking about what I love, which are one of the many things that I love, I suppose, which is Song of Myself. And my esteemed colleague, Wes, reminds me that... He does odds, and so tonight we are going to start with 17 and see how far we can go. And those of you watching on YouTube, I'm sharing my screen now. Okay. This All one. right. There we go. All right, so we're picking up at 17. These are really the thoughts of all men in all ages and lands. They are not original with me. If they are not yours as much as mine, they are nothing or next to nothing. If they are not the riddle and the untying of the riddle, they are nothing. If they are not just as close as they are distant, they are nothing. This is the grass that grows wherever the land is and the water is. This, the common air that bathes the globe. All right, I have about 10 major illusions that happen in this seemingly very small stanza. <laughs> so these are really the thoughts of all men in all ages and lands is a claim about what are called archetypes by the Jungian psychologists, ideas that grip humans that existed for all time and have shaped us into what we are and which our conscious minds are born out from. And insofar as you do not become conscious, according to the Jungians, you are completely controlled by an archetype. A, common, a modern Jungian, uh, Jordan Peterson, makes the same claim about, say, ideologies. Ideologies are sort of archetypes uh, rebranded into a new name. Uh, Neil Gaiman, I think, in his uh, semi-recent work, American Gods, essentially makes the same claim, that uh, old gods versus new gods, they're all gods. They're all things that control humans at any time and any place. And so these thoughts are not original with Whitman because he's being controlled by the same Zeus as, say, Homer was, or the same Calliope, uh, in the muse, as he was. If they're not yours as much as they're mine, they're nothing or next to nothing, suggesting that that thought which is so transcendent that it cannot be shared is a worthless shot, which is a Platonian claim about um, going out from the cave in order to gather information from unknown territory and to return it back to the pack at whatever cost it happens to be, which is also an Old Testament prophetic claim. That you, get, you gotta do it. Uh, specifically, the book of Jonah would be excellent representative of that. You, you either bring back the information uh, and get subjected to ridicule, which is also plutonium, uh, and, and do your duty or you know, show your value to the pack, or you, uh, you're not worth anything. And that seems to be also, I would say, an impetus for why Whitman is sharing all of his experiences so that he, unlike the, um, the, the android at the end of Blade Runner, does not have his memories fade like this or that drip of water in the rain. Um, this is how you immortalize them. And thus, uh, add what has always been, but always is required to be voiced and articulated back into the human herd. And if they are not the riddle and the untying of the riddle, they are nothing. This is supposed to be sort of an initiation ritual and thought that you, you like the characters in Westworld, must figure out the riddle. And in figuring out the riddle, like, like I think is claimed in uh, that most recent video game movie, I'm forgetting the name of, where you live in uh, sort of a matrix sort of reality, um, Ready Player One. Right. The whole point of the riddle and becoming conscious is to produce the new riddle to produce the new conscious individual and play out the eternal drama. And uh, if they are not as close as they are distant, they are nothing. That, I think, is a claim that the transcendent needs to be made imminent. 
And insofar as it can be brought to earth and embodied, it has value. And insofar as it can't, it's nothing. Um, the grass that grows wherever the land is and the water is, I see as a claim to sort of manna or super substantial bread, that which is the common spirit of all man, um, exists where man, wherever man is, and that could be even outside the globe now, but he didn't have space, the luxury of space travel at that time. And this is the common air that bathes the globe, the sort of spirit that perforates everybody or the super substantial bread that a man shares when, where two or three are gathered in his name. Um, so that's what I think I see. That's a lot. It's a yeah. short one. I mean, it is a really short one, especially after a few pretty long ones uh, that we did last time, I think. Um, and, and so it does kind of contain these oppositions within uh, a pretty short span. And the way that it structures them there, it does seem to be a, another one of his little challenges, right? And this time it's not really a not really a challenge to anyone but but the poem itself, right to be able to be yours and mine, to be the riddle and the untying of the riddle, to be close and distant and it's it's couched in a, a conditional right if they are not, then they are nothing but then in in the conclusion, the little couplet that that concludes this short section, um, he goes back to kind of asserting again. And so there's an interesting like back and forth between his assertiveness, his challenging his own poem, uh, his appealing to, uh, you know, the, the, the wonder of common things, but then also the, um, the possibility that they're, they're actually, I think it's a real possibility, right? That they are maybe nothing, right? And, and that's like a pretty big mystery. You, you brought up some, some heavy hitters, but I mean, the, the idea that there might be just nothing there is, is also a formidable thing to, to, uh, to come up against as a poet or, you know, to, to have that, that seed somewhere in there of doubt about the poem, um, but mingling it with this great, you know, boastful uh, uh, expansiveness. I, I just think it's, it's, really, it's really fascinating little um, section here. I agree, and I, I think it has something to do with the, pa the faith of the poem or the poet. The poet is expressing the ultimate extent of his genius in order to move forward the art of articulating through poetry. And so he has to believe that there will be someone greater than he that can ingest his information that will be shot forward faster for it and will become an even greater poet than he and then will make the next claim and will produce a piece of poetry, ideally, that will then justify the existence of the poet before. And you just, you have to bank on that if you're going to invest everything into a piece of work and you will never know the answer uh, most likely because you know probably you will die and it will be passed on and that will be something that you didn't know at least that has often been the case of great geniuses uh, at least in the literary world mm -hmm. cool yeah well, I feel like the next one is a great a great kind of answer to this this short one all right want to go go ahead with it
With music strong I come, with my cornets and my drums. I play not marches for accepted victors only. I play marches for the conquered, the slain persons. Have you heard that it was good to gain the day? I also say it is good to fall. Battles are lost in the same spirit in which they are won. I beat and pound for the dead. I blow through my embouchures, my loudest and gayest horn. Leave us to those who have failed, to those who war whose war vessels sank in the sea, and to those themselves who sank in the sea, and to all generals who lost engagements and all overcome heroes, and the numberless unknown heroes equal to the greatest heroes known. All right. That's, there's, I think he's alluding to himself here. Um, if I'm remembering right, there was a really similar question to this about, uh, about dying, right? And I, I didn't look back yet to see what exactly he said, but he said something just like that question. Have you heard it was good to gain the day? I think he, he asked something about how lucky it was to die earlier, something yes. like that. I got to look back and find that. But anyway. I think in the stanza where he was claiming, or the part where he was claiming, he knew, this is what I know. But yeah. But this, uh, this section is, is a pretty martial one, right? Yes. The imagery of the music is, um, is, is in, the, in the sense of a, uh, a warlike or a march. Um, but it's not what you expect, right? As much as he sort of builds that up right away, he says, again, this, this contrast, this opposition comes in where he plays for the conquered and slain. Um, and, and then he sort of considers that a little further, right? It's good to fall, which is rich. Battles are lost in the same spirit in which they are won. So you've got that idea of commonality again, and he kind of pushes it to a, a further extreme to the extreme of the the conqueror and the vanquished right being in some sense encompassed by the same music and the same spirit um he and then doubles down right it's for the dead he's that he's gonna sing his his most beautiful or play his most beautiful um song and i like the uh the vivas there right um i i guess that's like the hail or the the kind of like long live that he's adapted into uh and and put into his poem here um and it's a really suitable one for this time of year with day of the dead coming right up uh and, and so the um the idea that again you could have something in a sense unknown uh and have that right those unsung heroes that are in their daily life that we've been looking at all along. Now he's saying um, specifically to do with, with the wars, right? Um, all of the people who get uh, forgotten by history are, are in some sense equal uh, or even possibly uh, like more, I, I think he might say in this sense, right? Because they haven't been sung yet, it's it's this this is maybe one of the unique things about his poem that he'll he'll finally play the the suitable fanfare for them um that i think these uh these images of of sinking in the sea too right because we had the grass and we had the air in the previous one 
Um, but he definitely comes back to um, the sea from time to time as another major like aspect of nature, aspect of what he's trying to do with his poem. Um, that's kind of, you know, primordially unknown, right? It's the deepest thing. It's the, it's the place that we haven't explored. And so he's going to be able to kind of raise those lost uh, heroes in, into a kind of equivalence with, um, with all, the, all of the ones whose names are remembered. Uh, and I, I think that's what, I guess that's what he means by music strong, right? Um, that that is the strength that he's, he's proposing that he's got here. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a depth, right? It is interesting. And I do like that at this time of the year, because I do think that's part of the interpretation <laughs> that uh, we should be discussing the dead and how we remember them. Of course, you know, the fall festival, Halloween is to remind us that all do die and it is best to acquire the information from them as the seasons get colder and leads towards winter or the death of all hope, which is why Christmas comes four days after the longest night of the year to show that the light is re-entering the world. And then Easter comes when spring comes back, which indicates hope springing forth eternally in one's life and the process not only by which the world rebuilds itself, but a person after a failure or having fallen, that word failed looks so similar to fault. And you know, it's interesting. I interpreted it with you at first as this being beating the drum for those who are unsung. And I certainly do think that the poet re-embodies in new clothes, the old dead heroes from the underworld. And that's why so many great epic poets go to an underworld in order to acquire wisdom from like say a Tiresias or their father, in the case of the Odyssey and the Aeneid respectively, um, or Dante from Virgil, and then eventually from Beatrice, indicating his own uh, awareness, his own critical mind and faculty. Uh, and um, so this is, this is Whitman now diving to those depths. But I also note that his comments about generals that lost engagements and overcome heroes could be about people who have certainly been sung from about before, like Caesar, for example, or Alcibiades, or Agamemnon, or overcome heroes, that's all of them, right? They all eventually fail. Even Odysseus is killed to end his life. They all die. We will all die, I think, is something that he's saying here. And that, you know, this is how you re-embody the dead, by singing their songs, and then perhaps embodying in your own way their actions, like he is Homer or Virgil. Dante. And, um, but that numberless unknown heroes, I do think totally supports your point, which, you know, I think is probably more likely, but it just, it just reminds me of the stanza or the part before where, what is the value of a lost treasure? And it seems as if what he's suggesting is you have to go into that world as a person of whatever generation, every generation to get that gold make it real, make it into something real. It can then allow somebody in the future generations to do the same. Whether that be smithing, poetry, being a doctor, or being a teacher, it's always gotta be done. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know how many people really know about Caesar, you know, like yeah. even, even the greatest heroes known are gonna be forgotten sooner or later if you don't keep 
singing them, you know, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And the one other thing I just wanted to kind of throw out for like 10 seconds is, I wonder to what extent the people who are remembered are the best representatives of an ideal that all people around them share at their particular time. That Caesar just embodies the spirit of his people best, and then we agglomerate all the data of that people in his action. I say that after having watched Julius Caesar, a wonderful rendition at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego this last Friday. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, Shakespeare's Caesar is definitely a different one than you'd get in, say, like, I don't know, um, some Gibbon, like, or whatever ancient historian wrote about him, right? Like, each each telling of him in some way brings out different features, and and over time, definitely, they they glom together in different ways and he becomes a symbol for this or that, whereas you might lose sight of the actual person, right? Right. It's, it's kind of, huh. All right, all right. 19. This is the meal equally set. This the meal for natural hunger. It is for the wicked just the same as the righteous. I make appointments with all. I will not have a single person slighted or left away. The kept woman, sponger, thief, are hereby invited. The heavy-lipped slave is invited. The venerable is invited. There shall be no difference between them and the rest. This is the press of a bashful hand. This the float and odor of hair. This the touch of my lips to yours. This the murmur of yearning. This the far-off depth and height reflecting my own face. This the thoughtful merge of myself and the outlet again. Do you guess I have some intricate purpose? Well, I have, for the fourth month showers have, and the mica on the side of a rock has. Do you take it I would astonish? Does the daylight astonish? Does the early red start twittering through the woods? Do I astonish more than they? This hour I tell things in confidence. I might not tell everybody, but I will tell you. All right, we've got a lot going on in this one. Uh, first, a few themes that we've seen over and over again, the sort of dichotomies that he sets, um, um, which I'm not actually seeing immediately. I think that's in the back. Uh, in any case, so he, he sets dichotomies. And he also, he's bringing out this commonality again, right? Like uh, he, the kept woman, the sponger, the thief. These are, you know, people who are, who are um, considered, you know, common sort of images, sort of like the Socratic use of common words. But right before that, he, he evokes biblical imagery, the wicked and the righteous, which immediately brings to mind the thought of uh, he who is without sin cast the first stone, which puts one in sort of uh, a mindset of uh, non-judgmentalness when one reads this. And so he you know, has this crescendo of the heavy-lipped slave and the venereal lee, as in like somebody with syphilis, um, which is terrifying disease that I'm, I'm told even would eat your face in its last stages. So, you know, someone that you would naturally look down on and not care for and forget is someone like you. And so you're more, or he, he is attempting to put one in a more receptive position to understanding one's common humanity, the common spirit, as he mentioned before, that perforates all of us. There's no difference between them and the rest. You know, it's a, it's an ultimately like, equality, sort of American liberal sentiment. Um, and, and so that's, that's very excellent that he mentions that common spirit. Um, we then get four, this is in a row at the beginning of uh, the sentence, that anaphora there, 
this is the press of the bashful hand, this is the float and odor of the hair, this is the touch of my lips. Again, common experiences. But then also being a little bit bad, adding in that sensual imagery, again, which would have gotten him in, the, <laughs> which uh, seems to be some of his claim to infamy, the touch of my lips to yours. But he's again saying, who are you to judge? This is a real thing and I as a poet should represent the real experiences that exist. You know, you have no right to censor me. This is, this is what's natural to me. This is the murmur of yearning. This is the far off depth and height of reflecting my own face. So this is who he is, song of myself, of course. This the thoughtful merge, and th this is very interesting line. This is the thoughtful merge of myself in the outlet again. The merging of his being with his expression of being, his articulation, this poem. And now he speaks to us in a Dante-like way. It's called apostrophe. Do you guess I have some intricate purpose? And he, he's challenging us as the readers and interpreters to, to have faith in him or what, you know, question our faith in him. What is it that we're actually doing? Like he could just be scribbling down nonsense and wasting our time. But he answers that. Well, I have, and that's good because it's poetry and we have a lot of entertainments in this world. For the fourth month showers have, the mic on the side of a rock has. So he's, he's claiming that he has a hidden purpose. You see what it is he's doing, but you know not the intention that he bears yet. And now, four questions do you take it i would astonish does the daylight astonish and that's an excellent question because again you have to sort of understand the divinity or the transcendence in the everyday because the daylight obviously is the most astonishing thing ever because it provides for life and conscious life which as far as we know we're the only place that that exists and the fact that we can observe the daylight and then it's made us possible when you think about it, it's the most incredible thing you can possibly imagine. But you just take it for granted every day. So <laughs> does the early red start twittering through the woods? Again, sort of this like transcendentalist, like return to nature imagery. This is again something natural and thus real and thus worthy of interpretation. And I love this question, do I astonish more than they? It's like, as a human, you are more interesting to me than a bird. So yes, this hour, I tell things in confidence. So he takes on the didactic, but confiding role. I might not tell everybody, but I will tell you. And that seems to be sort of the ultimate meaning of humans and the logos and why the beginning is with the word, which is I am expressing to you specific information which will be useful to you. And because I think it will be useful to you. And that's, that's having the faith in the person you're speaking to, to that you are going to find something new together. And that that is the ultimate human endeavor. And that is actually our what leads to our specific advantage over other creatures. Like we don't just call at each other and like, <laughs> or, or like, you know, echolocate. We can develop, we've differentiated words by which we can effectively read each other's thoughts and minds, the better articulate we are. And so that's what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, well, so it's interesting how he, he kind of focuses in on the individual listener there. Well, I, I guess I take it to be an individual. And that's, that's, a, that's in some tension with what he was saying before about how it's, it's the thoughts of all men in all ages and lands, right? Um, but in some sense, I think you get to have both those things because like you're saying, like, that's how like words sort of work or language works. It's like, it's a communal and yet an, an individual thing at the same time each individual in the audience is getting to be told these things in confidence right um 
and he might not tell everybody. I, I think I, I take it to mean that there's uh, the possibility that there's there's people for whom he asks these like rhetorical questions, um, and those people don't you know find his his work interesting or purposeful or whatever. Like that is a real possibility, and presumably they haven't kept reading up to section 19, but, but if they have, maybe they'll finally get turned off here, right? Because he's, he's kind of taunting them. Um, but if they stick it out for one little stanza longer, then he, he again, he says, I, I will tell you um, these things in confidence, right? The, and the things seem to be, yeah, like you're saying, these, these allusions partly to, to biblical, to epic, uh, sorts of poetry and, and storytelling or, or history, but also his own kind of curious, I think it's, I think it's pretty unique, like the way that he'll, he'll write a line that has all that in it, right? Well, I have for the fourth month showers have, and the mica on the side of a rock has, like he's aggressively unpoetic, and yet it's, it's definitely his own personal style his own word right that he's saying and this is the this is a way no one has really said this before um he, he's he's appealing to a yeah a, a new sort of poetry um by calling it the fourth month you know uh instead of a april right january february march april yeah so the showers right which is a classic like chaucer uses that in the start of the canterbury tales the sweet showers of april but then, um, but then he'll juxtapose that right away with just the the rock, you know, like something so seemingly unpoetic, um, and and the structure of that that long sentence there just strikes me because it's like that word for what's it doing? It's like he's saying this is his reason for having an intricate purpose. Um, that like what kind of a what kind of a logic is that it's so it's so out there but it's um but it sound it sort of rings true you know like because he is sort of in contact with these things he's he's making those connections which haven't been made before in quite this way and that is part of his purpose he's weaving the new thread the new minervan thread penelope thread and it's interesting because it's like he's saying the mic on the side of a rock is sort of like us conscious beings on the side of a rock uh a planet that the marvel is the thing itself again that sort of phenomenological or existential claim or or idea that the fact of being and then conscious being they can reflect being and on it and its purpose is the purpose because it's the most magnificent thing that's ever existed even if it wasn't created by anything but the it doesn't matter what it was created by. It matters that it is. And yeah, well, that's, that's sort of what I think. <laughs> I think, no, I didn't notice that before, but I think isn't Micah, Micah is kind of a, a, a shiny rock actually, although it's fairly common. It, I think it does go with that idea of like reflection and um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. Yeah, I was, just, I was only noticing that because, and this is some very interesting, because you had pointed out the fourth month showers, which I didn't, I didn't catch that, nor that reference at all. And again, there it is, right? I didn't even think about fourth month. I, I just sort of autocorrected in my mind, which is a mistake, to four month showers. And I was like, okay, that sounds kind of loud, loud but that doesn't sound very American. 
um, maybe Seattle or something like that, like four month long showers. It sounds like, like a typhoon season or like a, a rain season, rather, a monsoon season, excuse me. Uh, but I didn't see that that was April and thus a direct reference back to Chaucer. And so because of my autocorrect and my error, I didn't see an illusion that was there. But when you drew my attention to that, then allowed me to further articulate on something that you weren't quite focusing on. So it's as if when you shine a light on an area, you can also see the area next to it more clearly because of that, and then join those together and say, like your map. Now, I have a much better understanding, I would say, of this stanza because of you, and it allowed me to make a further point, and that's sort of the beauty of this. Well, yeah, there's the, there you go, right? The merge and the outlet again, the, that kind of movement back and forth. Yeah, that's, I see, and that's where I think, again, like, I might not tell everybody, but I will tell you, and if it's really in confidence, right, then there has to be the possibility that there are people outside of the secret, but that doesn't mean they stay there also, right? Like, hmm. it might not happen this hour, but there's all a lot, all lot of other hours for them to, to get to this part of the poem, right? So it's like, if he doesn't catch them this go around, there's still a chance that you'll get something from it, you'll pass that something along to somebody else, and then they'll come back around to the poem and to all the other stuff that's behind the poem at some point. That's, it's, yeah, it's a, kind of, it's a kind of ars poetica, right? The, the, the poem about making a poem, and that, that seems to be woven in here, but also about sort of like, yeah, telling um, what you get from something and how that's gonna influence other people. Yes, it really does seem to justify the, the purpose of one's existence by conveying what one has specifically experienced oneself to another and providing one's perspective, one's honest perspective on events, because then one is embodying a real human thing it probably has not been embodied and articulated in that way by another human, which then expands their perspective, which enables them to better see. Um, and that insofar as you just live and then communicate what you live to others, that's the best thing you can do. Because you're just lighting up their minds, <laughs> lighting up their lives. Totally, totally. Well, hey, yeah. How, do we call it a night here? I think uh, looking at how how strong and bit long 20 is, I think we should, uh, yeah, we should wait till the next night to attack it. I think we're at uh -huh. a good time here. I'll stop the share now. Um, I think we're uh -huh. right within our parameters. We're right about at 30 minutes. And so, good. Thanks. All right. Thank you.